right. Uh, good morning. Uh, maybe one more time. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I've been kind of working through a cold. I, I lost my voice a couple weeks ago, and um, last night it came back, uh, like in full force, and so I'm kind of snotty and, and gross, and so you can imagine I was really nervous, like, why, Lord? Um, but I'm thankful uh, to bring God's word to you this morning. As Jason mentioned, my name is Nicholas, uh, and I do serve here as a youth pastor at Citizens, and today I have the privilege of sharing God's word with us. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and grab them or on your devices and open with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 54, and we're going to read through to Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3, and I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. All right, Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. Please follow along as I read God's word for us. This is God's word. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Amen. What a passage for my first sermon. Um, thank you, Jason. Uh, I should pray for us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your living word. We thank you that your word has real power to change us, our families, to transform this city and our world. And we humbly ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would show us the beauty and grace of Jesus today. As we open your word, speak, Lord. We are listening. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Acts, and very simply, we're in this series because we want to be the church. We want to be known as a spirit-filled church. But in the kind of world that we live in today, I think it's actually easier to be known for so many things other than being spirit-filled. Churches today are often known for having engaging communicators, for having a beautiful facility, a wonderful children's program, Churches can be known for their lights, their production, the music. And I don't remember the last time someone described a church 
first and only with spirit-filled. And we have to wonder, what about Citizens LA? What is our church known for? As Jason mentioned, I joined the staff here back in March, and as someone new to this community, when I would meet up and see old faces, they would ask me about my experience at Citizens. And one of the things that almost always came up is how Citizens was part of beef. (laughs) And I don't know if this is what everybody out there thinks of our church. This is definitely a limited perspective. It's just limited to who I'm talking to. But every time I would see someone, they're like, man, how's your new church? Like, uh, what's Citizens like? And always, almost always, it would come up. Like, hey, Citizens was on beef. And sometimes it's not always subtle. I'd be like, dude, Nick, congrats. You're at the LA church with the fashionably sensible hip Korean pastor. Grow some facial hair and play some sick licks on that electric guitar. I get asked questions like, what's it like being part of the LA church that has a praise team that sang with celebrities? Sometimes it's not as subtle. It's just kind of like a, hmm, I saw beef. And so much is exchanged in those few words. And you know what the silliest part of this whole thing is? I start to actually think that simply by association to citizens, now I'm a little bit cooler. As if I had something to do with beef. And just to be clear, I'm not actually cooler. I didn't personally participate in beef. I had no part to play. Nothing about my life changed for better or for worse because citizens was on beef. But the perception that I was a little cooler all happened as a result of the fact that I was now part of the church that played a part in beef. And without even knowing it, I start to believe, yeah, I am at the church that was on a Netflix series. This is a pretty cool thing to be known for. How many churches can say that? But you know, as cool as this is, and it's really cool, when we go to heaven, I just really don't think being a part of beef will make even the top 100 things to remember this church for. Because the thing that matters and the thing that will matter the most when everything is said and done is not what were we known for to the world, what were we known in our communities, but the thing that will matter the most is were we known as the church that God wanted us to be? Were we known as a church for what God wanted us to be known for? Were we known to be a spirit-filled church? At the beginning of this series, as a way of recap, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come, and sure enough, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. At that very moment, the church is born, and as we've seen through this series, the early church was known for a number of things. They've built up quite a reputation. They have extraordinary qualities that can only be attributed to a work of the Holy Spirit. This community is brimming with boldness. They're radically united, outrageously generous, and they're constantly prayerful. And because of the Spirit, they are supernaturally embodying everything that Jesus taught them. And you know this isn't a fluke because after they face some persecution, when the pressure is on, they don't quit. The church keeps going, it keeps growing, and the gospel continues to change lives. And I look at this church and I think, I would love to have been a part of that. 
It's so different from churches today. It's so different from our perception today. You and I and churches today, we tend to see conflict and adversity, suffering as something to be avoided at all costs if possible. But the early church was different. Whenever they faced suffering, they simply prayed and they rejoiced in the midst of their persecution. They weren't looking for suffering, but they also weren't hiding or running from it either. They had a profound sense of their worth in God, and they were secure despite some of the really cruel things that they were facing. Let me give you an example, a list of what the church has faced and how they responded. The apostles were verbally threatened to be silent, and how did they respond? By unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. Their reputations were smeared. They're falsely accused by religious leaders, but they don't care. They don't try to preserve their social image. They don't try to have the last word. They only care about pleasing God. They're thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and when God miraculously sets them free, where do we find them? Right back in the synagogues, teaching about Jesus, doing the very thing that got them thrown in jail in the first place. They're flogged and beaten, ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. And what do we find? They come out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name of Jesus. This is incredible. I just imagine they got beat up and they're kind of giggling. Like they're bruised and they're hurting and they just kind of wince at each other like... They're rejoicing in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering for the gospel. Why? Because they considered it their joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is an incredibly vibrant, gospel-shaped community. This is what the church looks like when she's spirit-filled. And one of the Pharisees, someone who's outside of the community, looks at this community and says, if this is of human origin, it's going to fail But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting God. And that is exactly what's going on. The church is moving. It's growing. The community is unstoppable. And God himself seems to be fighting for them. And then we get to our passage in Acts 7. Now let me do a little groundwork for Stephen. Stephen is first introduced in Acts 6. The community has grown so large that the apostles, uh, the 12 apostles themselves, they just can't oversee all the responsibilities. So people are being overlooked with a plan. They come up with a plan, and they propose that they select, the community appoints seven men full of the Spirit to help with the church's responsibilities. And this is where Stephen is first introduced. He's described as a man full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. He's performing signs and wonders. And again, the religious leaders won't have it. So they bring a charge against him. They lie about his testimony. They bring up false witnesses. And Stephen is brought before the high priest. He's basically put on trial. And what we see in Acts 6 and 7, if you read, is that Stephen is incredible. He doesn't shrink back. He just tells them straight to their face they're wrong. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are wrong. They think they stand for God with all their religiosity, but they crucified the Son. And this is where we pick up in verse 54. When they had heard this, this rebuke from Stephen, 
what we find is this really stark contrast between the religious leaders and Stephen. This back and forth. The religious leaders were told when they heard this, they're gnashing their teeth. They're grinding their teeth. It's a picture of utter fury, anger. And in the very next verse, Stephen, on the other hand, he's described as being full of the Spirit. His eyes are not looking for an answer within or inside of his suffering. His eyes are looking beyond them. He's looking outside of them. And what we see is that the religious leaders here are blind, but Stephen has true sight. He's seeing something that can only be seen through the eyes of the Spirit. He sees Jesus. And then the religious leaders, how do they respond when Stephen says, I see the Lord? They don't look to the sky. They don't look for Jesus. They go from utter fury to absolute rage. They cover their ears And they start yelling at the top of their voices. They drag this man out and they begin to stone him. And this is the picture. This is the violence that we see. And yet, what do we find Stephen doing? Verse 57 tells us that while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. He prays, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, cries out, do not hold this sin against them, Lord. And then Stephen dies. And then in the first three chapters of cha- first three verses of chapter 8, we're told that a great persecution now broke out against the church. Everyone except the apostles have been scattered. The community is in mourning, but Saul is beginning his quest to destroy the church. Now, up until Acts 6, I think, man, I would love to have been part of that church. When we get to Acts 7, all of a sudden it's like, wait, hold up. What's going on here? See, I look at our passage and I feel like this is a loss for the church. Where was God? Why did Stephen die in our passage? Where is God when persecution begins to ravage the church? Think about this with me. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Something is off. So far, no weapon has prospered against God's people. Anytime God's people went through something, God always made a way out. He always came through for his people. He always delivered them. Whenever they were an inch away from death, God somehow shows up at the last minute and saves them. So why does this passage feel like God is way more passive than he is present? Where is God in Stephen's suffering? See, this story can only mean one of two things. One, either Stephen's suffering for the gospel was a mistake and God messed up. God was having an off day, kind of bad timing, uh, wrong place, wrong time, and oops, like God forgot about this one. That's how we'll make sense of this. Or Stephen's suffering is not a mistake. This is not a one step forward, two steps back kind of moment. This isn't some godless tragedy. But it's that God is doing something that we're not seeing. And what you and I need to know in our guts is which of the two is right. Is Christian suffering for the gospel a mistake? Or is there really a deeper purpose in our suffering? Because if suffering because of the gospel is a mistake, then that's terrifying. Because we have a God who can but won't. 
We have a God who tells us he loves us but won't always protect us. But if suffering because of the gospel is not a mistake, then what this text means for us, if we want to be a spirit-filled church, is this, that suffering is unavoidable for all of us, but Jesus has something for us in our suffering. Suffering is unavoidable for all of us, but Jesus has something for us in our suffering. What does the Holy Spirit do for us in our suffering? What does it mean to be full of the Spirit when you're in times like these? Just one point, and I want to tease out two implications. What does the Holy Spirit do in our suffering? He helps us see that Jesus is truly enough. He helps us see what we most desperately need to see. The only description we really get of Stephen in this passage, in this picture of violence and rage and hostility and anger, is that Stephen was a man that was full of the Spirit. And if we're not careful, we can look at this passage and and just kind of miss that detail. We just focus on his actions, how he prayed in his suffering, how he forgave even in death, And we can look at a passage like this and just be told and just think to ourselves, that's what we should do. We should just pray without any answers. We should pray even if we don't understand. And we should just forgive. But this passage isn't about how remarkable Stephen is. It's about how powerful the Holy Spirit is. Stephen is full of the Spirit. And what is the result? What does the Spirit do? It directs his vision. It changes his gaze. It takes his eyes off of what's happening and looks to something beyond what is immediate, beyond what can be seen. The the Spirit shows him what he most desperately needs to see. I think in a city like this, in a world like this, that is so painful, a world that is so full of brokenness, I think what we need is a greater vision of the glory of God. We need a vision of Jesus, a vision that will recapture our hearts, a vision that will inspire our hearts. If you're here and you're thinking, see Jesus, like that sounds like not enough. It'd be nice. You know, I thought this myself, like "Ah, seeing Jesus sounds so good, but Lord, like you could have sent a legion of angels. That would have been really nice like pillar of fire, fire from heaven, ground swallowing up the enemies. Like you could have done it in so many ways. What do you mean God seeing? What do you mean that he saw Jesus? But that's what we need the most. We need to see Jesus and that's precisely what the Holy Spirit helps us to do in suffering for the gospel. And this isn't easy. This is difficult for us. Because we're hardwired by our world and by our culture to fend for ourselves, to watch our own backs. Trusting God to be enough is really hard. And I want to submit to you this morning that in God's word, what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us is that, no, Jesus is still enough. Seeing Jesus will give us everything we need in this life. Do you know what the most repeated command in Scripture is? It's don't be afraid. 
The one thing that God says to his people the most all throughout the Bible is don't be afraid. And do you know why God commands us to not be afraid? It comes with a promise. It's because he promises to be with us. The most repeated command from God is not pray harder, it's not fast, it's not attend every religious ceremony and activity, it's not be a small group leader, it's not raise your kids this way, it's don't be afraid because I'm with you. And this one promise took Jesus to the cross. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took upon himself the curse of our sins, he experienced the radical separation that sin causes. In Jesus' greatest suffering, he was alone so that you and I never have to be. See, the word of God says that those who follow Jesus will endure trouble in this life. Following Jesus doesn't give us a free pass on suffering. We don't get to sidestep and avoid troubles in the world. We can't just pray away our problems. Following Jesus doesn't guarantee our health. It doesn't mean our relationships always work out. It doesn't mean our plans and dreams always come true. In fact, Jesus said it would be harder for those who follow him because if the world hated him, then the world will hate us too. So if you follow Jesus... If suffering isn't a mistake, it's unavoidable, then it means if we follow Jesus, life doesn't automatically get easier. But if you follow Jesus, you get Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit shows us, when we see Jesus, it's not as though God has given us the very least of himself. It's the very best gift that God can give. It's the one thing you and I were made for, the one thing we crave, to be loved unconditionally. To have the promise that no matter what we face in this life, we don't have to go through it alone. And as the Spirit shows Stephen Jesus... There are at least two things that happen inside of him. We not only get the power to endure, but the peace to endure. And we see that forgiving our enemies is really possible. Let me say that again. When the Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus is truly enough, two things happen inside of us supernaturally. We not only get the power to endure suffering, but we have the peace to endure through it. And we see that forgiving our enemies is not just a a religious cliche. It's not a good thing to do, but it's actually really possible. Think about this. How could Stephen pray while they were stoning him? I get so distracted in prayer without persecution. How in the world is the brother praying while rocks are like pelting him? I think it's because Stephen was captivated by his vision of Jesus. He was so consumed by what he saw that in that moment, he wasn't just enduring by his willpower, but by the Spirit, he had an unexplainable peace that things would be okay. He had a peace that can enable him to suffer well in the face of death. We need to see Jesus 
again and again. Look upon him again and again until we're moved from just having power, sheer willpower, to having a peace that comes from knowing him. As a dad of two young kids, one of the things I love about being a dad is how my kids have kind of a unique power over me. Uh, it doesn't matter kind of what I face throughout the week, what kind of worries I have, stress I have about you know, bills I need to pay or emergencies that are happening. Um, my, my first, she's three, she's gonna be four, and poor girl, uh, she broke her foot already. Uh, she's healed and jumping around fine, but you know, that's on me. She jumped off the couch, she's like, I can fly, and no, she can't, you know, and she broke her foot. And like my mind is kind of swirling out of control. Or I go to work, or I'm at the shop, and I'm working, and I'm not feeling well, and I'm, I'm out at a coffee shop working, I'm not feeling well, and something isn't clicking, and I'm just feeling really stressed and really anxious. And the unique power that my kids have is when I come home, I bring all of this with me. I try not to, but I bring all of this with me. And as soon as I get home, you know what my kids do? I have two, two girls, Autumn, she's three, and I have Amber, she's one. Autumn's like, Daddy. And she runs to me. Amber can't speak yet, so she's like, <laughs> and she's like crawling towards me. And they come into my arms, and they give me this sweetest squeeze. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm transported. All of a sudden, everything I was worried about just kind of hits pause. It's not that they cease to exist. I still have to pay bills. I still have to take care of errands. I still have to fix my car. But in that moment, all of a sudden, those things that I thought really mattered find their right place. And I realize as I'm hugging my kids, this matters. This is what really matters. Can I tell you this morning, friends? Can I encourage you this morning? Seeing Jesus is infinitely better than the hug that I receive from my kids. If we can only see Jesus like Stephen saw, you can pray with peace, Psalm 23. You can say to the Lord, you're my shepherd, and I lack nothing. Even though I walk through dark valleys, I won't be afraid because you're with me and you'll comfort me. And somehow, someway, Jesus, my good shepherd, you're gonna carry me through this and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. We can sing these songs without cynicism in our hearts, without restraint in our hearts when we see Jesus. If we know that God is with us, if we see that he's with us, and that he'll take us through it no matter how hard it gets, and on the other side is eternal joy with him, then I think this puts into perspective even our greatest suffering. Even the greatest tragedies that we suffer for the gospel, when we see it in light of eternity, when we see Jesus and what he has done for us and how he promises to be with us, all of our greatest sufferings for the gospel are just like a drop compared to the infinite oceans of joy that await us in God's presence. So when we see that Jesus is enough, not only are we moved from just power to endure, but having a peace as we endure, but the second thing that I think happens in us supernaturally is that we begin to believe and we begin to see that Christ-like forgiveness 
is really possible. Stephen's prayer of forgiveness is incredible, but it's not original. It's not a coincidence that Stephen prays the same two prayers that Jesus prayed. What does this mean? I think when Stephen saw the Lord and he's being pelted and stoned for proclaiming the truth of the gospel, I think in that vision of Jesus, he was brought to the cross. He was remembering the sight of his own Savior who had done nothing wrong and yet was crucified on behalf of sinners. And when Jesus could have done anything on that cross to release himself and to end it once and for all, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Lord, receive my spirit. And it's this vision of the cross, it's this vision of who Jesus is for us that enabled Stephen, that enables us to even believe in the possibility that forgiveness is possible. Stephen could forgive because he saw how deeply he was forgiven. Think about this with me. And I know that there are real offenses and real hurts here. But if someone, let's say you owned a million dollars, if someone robs you of a million dollars, how would you feel? Like you want to end their life. <laughs> like you want to get revenge. You'll do anything to get what's yours back because they've wronged you. But what if I told you that at the same time that you are robbed of the million dollars that you own, you inherited a hundred trillion dollars? That's 14 zeros. Are you really going to spend your entire life not enjoying the hundred trillion dollars, but holding on to the fact that someone stole a million from you? See, this is a, a poor illustration, but I'm trying to show us that even the things that we value most in this life, if we were to receive an exorbitant amount of it, we would not think twice about releasing that debt. And here's the reality, friends. What God in Jesus Christ forgave in you and me will forever be infinitely greater than anything you and I could forgive someone else of. What God has forgiven in you and me is infinitely greater than anything you and I could forgive someone else's. In other words, when God asks us, when the Spirit prompts us to forgive, it's not because God hasn't already done that for us. As we walk through this series, I believe one of the, the greatest signs that the Capital C Church is truly Spirit-filled is when we know that Jesus is all we have and Jesus is actually all we need. We don't need the buildings. We don't need, I mean, it'd be nice, Lord. <laughs> but we don't need the buildings. You know, we don't need the, the other things. Not because they're bad, but because the one thing we do need is enough. These last moments of Stephen's life, maybe you can relate to this morning. You're here and you're going through some suffering because of the gospel, because of your faith, because of your conviction. And you're like, where is God in my suffering? I just want to tell you that this story, this suffering that Stephen, Stephen as the first martyr endured, it's not a tragedy. 
not in the least. No, it was a triumph for the gospel. This moment when now things go from just mere persecution, some beatings and being thrown into jail to actually life-threatening. This moment is not something that we should shrink back from, but it's an invitation to experience all the more the triumph of the gospel. Stephen did not lose his life that day. And his story, although it's only two chapters long, wasn't a waste. It was the opposite. Stephen had won. He won the highest treasure. He fell into the arms of our Savior. He was received by the Lord Jesus. And I pray for those of us who are enduring through these things, that we too, the Holy Spirit, we would ask the Holy Spirit to show us a vision of who Jesus is and that we too would see that Jesus is truly enough. That our whole lives, even if it's falling apart, that we would center our lives, center our hearts, center our future hope around Jesus to know that he's enough. Let's pray. Just want to give you a moment to respond to God's word. Let's just take a moment in quietness to ask the Holy Spirit. Spirit, would you show me, show me the Lord Jesus. Show me how Jesus is sufficient for me, how he's enough for me in this area of my life. What is the thing that is keeping you anxious? What is the thing that is stressing you out? I can promise you what will solve that issue, what will make it worth enduring with peace is not more stuff, it's seeing Jesus. And so let's ask the Lord together quietly in prayer, Holy Spirit, would you show us that Jesus is enough? Let's make that our prayer and then the team will lead us in some songs of response. Let's pray together.